Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this time we're looping around to what we talked about last time with more time travel. Haven't we been here and done this before? Ah! We have, but we're doing it again, but differently. Before we get into all that temporal stuff, however, what is going on? Well, speaking of time and the fact that it's upon us again, time is running out, I tell you, especially for those that are listening to this in several months' time. Time is running out to grab issue 11 of the Blasphemous Tome. It's almost here! It is almost here, and if you back us before the end of this month, June 2023, then you will be able to secure a print copy signed by myself and Matt and Scott. If you back at the $5 level or above, we will post you one to wherever you are in the whole wide world. And if you're backing at $3 and above, then you get access to a code to secure a print-on-demand copy at a reduced price. And whatever level you back at, you'll be able to get the PDF. And also coming up soon is the next Weekend with Good Friends. This, of course, is the gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners over on our Discord server. GM signups have now closed, but if you do want to offer a game, there'll be pickup games running throughout the weekend. But player signups for the games that have been listed already will open on the 23rd of June, this coming Friday as of the release of this episode. The signups work via a lottery system, so do take a look at the webpage for A Weekend with Good Friends. I'll put a link in the show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. For the first time ever, we will be having panels. So there are a whole bunch of panels running throughout the weekend. This is the 7th to the 9th of July, the convention, on a variety of topics related to horror gaming and Call of Cthulhu specifically. We'll put details of that again up on the website, and we hope to see some of you there. So I see, Scott, you've got a couple of uh, scenarios that you're going to be playing through with Ain't Slayed Nobody podcast. One of them we actually played, oh, I think probably about two years ago, but we did it as a live stream, and it's being edited up now into a podcast and the audio sorted out and stuff like that. And that is The Murder Shack from issue 5B of the Tome, which has just been reissued. So if you want to hear what that plays like, then, yeah, check it out. It should be, I think, in the Ain't Slayed Nobody feed about now. Obviously, we're recording this in advance, so I'm not 100% sure what the release date is, but it is imminent. And if you want to get a copy of the scenario, as Scott said, it's available in issue 5B. So that's available free to all patrons on our patreon.com. And patrons can also get a print-on-demand copy. And also this month I am recording with Ain't Slayed Nobody Blackshade from issue 11 of the tome, which I don't know whether that'll actually be out in June. Probably not because our recording dates got a little delayed by illness, but it should be out, I'm, I'm hoping, in early July. 
Also, you've been talking to friends of the good friends, Scott, about topics relevant to recent issues that we've put out on the podcast. Yes. After the first episode of our spiritualism double bill went out, I was contacted by Sean F. Smith, uh, who is a regular listener to the podcast and who I've corresponded with before about RPG stuff. And he revealed that he is, by profession, a mentalist and a stage magician with a special interest in spiritualism and mediumship and stuff like that, and how it all relates to stage magic. So we had a chat. We spoke for about an hour. I'm in the process of editing it all at the moment, but what I'm hoping is by the time you hear this episode, then it should be out in your feed. And speaking of, well, speaking to people, I recently appeared as an interview subject instead of an interviewer over on Bud and Griff's Gaming Creep Show, which is a podcast hosted by Bud of Bud's RPG fame, along with his friend Griff, who have started interviewing various people in the RPG field and just having long, weird, informal discussions. And they spoke to me about all sorts of horror gaming stuff, but also about some of my weirder experiences when I was younger. So if you're interested in some of the strange stuff we were talking about in the spiritualism episode, you may want to listen to this and hear how, once upon a time, I got involved in performing an exorcism. And now on to our main topic, Time Travel in Call of Cthulhu, Part 2. We gave you the blurb last time. (laughs) Yes, last episode we covered certain aspects of time travel, particularly taken from media, but... Perhaps appropriately for an episode on time travel, we ran out of time, and we have quite a lot left to cover. Now, we were around the time that we we had to stop talking about the more psychic version of time travel, where instead of jumping into your time machine or whatever and stepping back physically in time or stepping through a portal in time or even using time dilation to experience time differently from the rest of the world around you, here you are sending your consciousness forward or backward in time to, well, either possess someone else or perhaps possess an earlier version of yourself, or even be there as a discorporate entity. And this is something I I think we see quite a lot in, well, not just science fiction and time travel fiction, but particularly in the mythos, and we'll get to some examples of that soon. But uh, have you two encountered any more really interesting examples from outside the mythos of this form of time travel? Yeah, there's a big one, and he never got home. Quantum Leap. Mm. Ah. One of my more favourite shows. Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap accelerator and vanished. And that's pretty much the premise for the for the whole series, that he went back to travel in his own lifetime, and he goes back to put right what once went wrong. And I still find that a tongue twister to try and say. <laughs> There's some great episodes in the early seasons where he goes back and meets various historical figures even meets Stephen King and accidentally gives him a whole load of ideas for some of his early books. 
one of my favourite ones where they kind of veer into the supernatural as well slightly, that there's the evil owl, this figure that shouldn't be there but is. You've got evil leapers that jump around in time trying to put stuff wrong. And yeah, it's, it's just a great show. It's it's maybe a bit repetitive at, at times and it's a bit formulaic, but there's sometimes when the show really does shine. And it had one of the most bizarre endings of a TV series ever as well. <laughs> when was that on? Like back in the 90s, I seem to think. Late 80s, early 90s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it just seemed to be on like all the time. Uh, I, I saw the odd episode here and there, but I never like watched it consistently. I've got all five box sets on DVD, so I watched them from start to finish. Did they ever deal with the ramifications for this? So you've got Beckett. I mean, you know, you'd have to explain this to me, Matt, because I'd never watched the program. Mm -hmm. But you've got Beckett jumping back in time, jumping into people's lives and basically setting them on different paths. Do they ever deal with the sort of ripple effects or the butterfly effects through time of all these changes that he's making? Because obviously he's come from a point in the future where all these things had gone wrong by setting them right. Is he introducing any paradoxes or problems for himself or the future that he came from? I don't remember paradoxes, but I do remember there are a few episodes which look at the kind of the surrounding mechanics around how it works. Like there's one that flashes forward to the future where you see from Beckett's body's perspective, you see, because their consciousness is effectively swapped places. So you've got the person that he's, uh, Sam's inhabiting in the past, their consciousness goes forward into Sam's body in the future. And there's at least one episode I can think of where the guy possessing Sam is, I think he's a criminal, and he manages to break out of the facility. So they have to go and hunt him down so that his body can be back in the waiting room in time for when Sam jumps again. But there is the one lingering leap that didn't go the way that at least Al wanted it to go, which is where Al's trying to convince Sam all the way through, no, you've got to stop this woman from giving up on her husband because he's stuck in, uh, I think it's Vietnam or somewhere overseas, that he's a POW. And that's Al's first love. So Al is trying to manipulate Sam to try and basically put his own timeline right. And that doesn't happen until the very last scene of the last episode where Sam elects to go back and fix that problem, which of course then does set up a bit of a paradox is, well, how has he then gone through the whole the rest of the series with Al's help if Al never hmm. went through this whole series of marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, and ended up where he did to help Sam at that point in the future. But then they never address that because that's the last scene of the very last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul, you were mentioning sliders. Yeah, I was going to say they kind of conflated in my mind. It's like there was Quantum Leap and then soon after Sliders began and it seemed like it was riding on the back of Quantum Leap. Although obviously it's quite different in that it's dealing with parallel universes rather than time travel. Was it? It was right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it hadn't occurred to me until you were talking about it there that the premise of Quantum Leap, or at least with the body swap aspect of it, is very shadow out of time. Oh, yeah, it's straight out of Yithian, yeah. Mm. But there was also a film series that, I can't remember if it predated Quantum Leap, that dealt with a very similar type of time travel, which was Trances. I want to say it was a Full Moon production, a Charles Band production. So, you know, it was, I think, director video, a fairly low-budget production. But it was the same kind of thing. It was this 
cop from the future who was sending his consciousness back in time. I think it was designed really to cash in on the success of the Terminator franchise. But instead of physical time travel again, it was going back and your consciousness possessing someone else. But the wrinkle in this one or the limitation in this one was that you could only send your consciousness back to your ancestors so you could possess like your great 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 grandfather or something like that you had all these people jumping back in time to their ancestors and taking them over for brief periods of time and i can't remember whether it dealt with things like obviously you have to try to keep these people alive because otherwise you won't exist in the present i think it did i think i think that was an aspect of it but it's I mean, I only saw the first couple of films. I think they made something like six or seven of them. They're okay for kind of cheapy direct-to-video 80s or 90s science fiction. They're, they're not bad. No, I'd never heard of them. No, I mean, that really brings in another aspect of swapping bodies. I can see how that ties in. It's a separate issue to time travel, but it's, it's a way of, in fiction, that, that time travel has been incorporated, isn't it? Mm. And to me, I, I guess there are two, when we talk about a movement of spirit rather than physical movement, there seems to be like there's two different things here. One is that you jump back, like you just guys just been talking about, where you jump back into somebody else's body or you jump back, I don't know, in a way that you can actively participate with the past and affect it in some way. And there's the other way where you're just looking back like we see in the story we're going to look at in Hounds of Tindalos, he's just kind of looking back, almost as if he's looking through a telescope at the distant past. And that doesn't feel so much like time travel to me, if it's just a, a way mm. of seeing the past, you know, like watching TV, I'm looking at the past, you know, if it's a documentary about a previous period. So I think for me, really, it needs to have some aspect of active rather than passive. To be actually traveling, I need to be able to interact with it. Yeah, and there's a sort of middle ground as well, because you have some stories where people are going back and experiencing past lives. Depending on how that is presented, then you know, maybe they're going back to a past life and reliving it. And again, you've got issues of causality, perhaps, where they're going back and doing things in the past that always shaped the past or whatever, taking an active role, or maybe they're going back to the past and just being a tourist. But effectively, their consciousness is, is within someone else's mind. That's something that it's kind of interesting me to perhaps do in Call of Cthulhu at some stage. You've got all these drugs and mechanisms, which we'll come to quite shortly, to send someone's consciousness back in time and perhaps revisit past lives or the times of Mu and Lemuria and so on. And I think it'd be really quite interesting to perhaps use that as a mechanism for inserting say a pulp Cthulhu chapter within a longer campaign that you're, you're playing investigators, you know, you find this mechanism or drug or whatever that allows you to experience a previous time back in Atlantis or Moo. Mm. And you play this very Robert E. Howard pulp Cthulhu campaign or, or scenario. And then 
perhaps shape some events and find yourself in the modern day again. I think that'd be kind of cool. Mm. I mentioned this before, didn't I? And you'd said that there was something similar, Matt, didn't you, in A Cold Fire Within? Yeah, there is the concept in that this maybe is veering into spoiler territory. So anyone that hasn't played the campaign and does want to play with it, plug your fingers in your ears for a sec. There is an element of an invasion of the past coming into the present that you have these people, this race from the distant past, which are projecting their consciousness forward and swapping very much like the Ithians, swapping out with people in the modern day. And then they are trying to recreate their own society and their own civilization in their modern day. It's in the 30s because it's very much tied in with the rise of fascism in the US. We're going to be moving on to time loops in a moment, but I think there's a sort of bridging thing between what we're talking about now and time loops, which is there's a sort of subgenre of time travel, which is about people going back within their own lives and reliving them. I've encountered a few stories like this. Butterfly effects? Yeah, I mean, that's that's clearly one. But I think the one that sort of started them off was a novel from, I want to say, the 1960s, which was Replay by Ken Grimwood, mm. which is about uh, a middle-aged man who suddenly wakes up and he's he's 18 again. He's, he's back in his own body when he's 18, but with all his memories of the previous 25 years, and is in this cycle of doing that over and over again, so reliving his life and perhaps making different choices and reshaping his life in different ways. So it's kind of Groundhog Day on a bigger scale, time scale. It's credited very much as being a, an influence on Groundhog Day, but it's nowhere near as well known. I've got a copy of it. All right. That makes me think of A Christmas Carol, you know, Charles mm. Dickens, where you've got Scrooge is taken back by the ghost of Christmas past to show him his past and he observes himself, you know, in the past and then he observes his grave and, and his future. So there's, there's a kind of element of time travel in that mm. to teach a lesson, a moral lesson. But also, Matt, like you say very much, Butterfly Effect, I think, is, well, I was about to say I think it's quite an interesting film. I've only ever seen the director's cut of it, <laughs> which I understand is much better than the theatrical release. The one where he goes back at the end and strangles himself with his own umbilical cord. That one. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that one. <laughs> the one with the really happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked Butterfly Effect. I wouldn't say it's a cinematic great, but I thought there was... Uh, a lot of interesting stuff in there, and I just love the idea of going back and trying to fix the mistakes of the past and just making things worse every time and just introducing all these unforeseen complications. And I think that, for me, is the most interesting part of time travel going back into the past, which is these unforeseen consequences that you may have if you're doing this in a gaming context player characters going back and trying to prevent horrible things from happening or deal with the antagonists before they become a, a serious danger or whatever. But there's always going to be those unforeseen circumstances, those unforeseen complications that are going to ripple through to the present and perhaps just make things even worse for them. It occurs to me that the time travel, as we've discussed, it's a great tool in a story albeit it has its its problems and its issues you have consistency and and you know how you find logic within it not necessarily a tool for horror 
generally. There are some bits of horror that I can think of in time travel films mm. and stories, but it's I don't associate it with horror when I think time travel is it fits into kind of all genres. I mean, it can be, but yeah. that's not a key thing attached to it. I think when we come to time loops, they lend themselves much more because I can think of yeah. some great horror films that involve time loops. Triangle. That's a fantastic film. <laughs> That's also a huge spoiler for Triangle. Oh, well. We spoiled other ones. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, if we're getting into spoiler territory, there was a, an American indie horror film from oh, probably about 15 years ago called Salvage. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much cult, the movie. Yeah, it goes by a few other names as well. But yeah, Salvage is the one I remember seeing it under. Huh. And of course, there's the Happy Death Day films. I mean, the first one of which I thought was quite a lot of fun. The second one, oh dear God, I hated that. <laughs> Russian Doll? Yeah. 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 The first season, anyway. Is this time loops now? I think we have drifted into a time loop, Paul. Let's hope we can get ourselves out. So another form of time travel, aside from the ones we discussed then, is time loops, where the characters are somehow transported back generally a fixed time in groundhog day it's like a day isn't it so it was kind of clues in the title to relive that loop again until they can somehow escape it or achieve some goal usually and i think this gets around a lot of the issues that we've discussed because you can do the craziest things and you know do whatever and it's going to reset if it's going to reset to the start point exactly as it was like at midday today you get through to tomorrow and it jumps back to midday today and everything's just you press the reset button then i think that allows you a lot more freedom in the game in the story so i can remember i'm going to give a spoiler for my own scenario that kind of does this for gatsby you might want to give it the full title well indeed okay so gatsby and the great race is it's called and this was a scenario that was first run like almost 20 years ago now, like in 2004, 2005. And we were proposing to run it in Germany. And I remember, because it involves a, a bunch of keepers. So there was, yeah. um, there was about four, well, there's about six or seven keepers and we were getting ready to run it. And me and Kiri overheard somebody in the courtyard in Germany saying, I hope this isn't about time travel. I hate scenarios about time travel. And we're like, oh shit, <laughs> this guy's not going to enjoy this game. <laughs> oh, okay. But, you know, he loved it. So that was great. <laughs> that was even better, really, because he was set up to hate it and then uh, he loved it. <laughs> so I guess it didn't run into some of the problems that he anticipated. But yeah, so time loops, what's the deal with those? There's a good, rather than the typical, you start at one point in time and then you go through like the day and go back to the start again. There was a nice use of them, I think the first time they appeared in Doctor Who, going back to a good old classic mm. time travel series of mine. Yeah. From the, the end of the Claws of Axos, where a time loop was explained and it was terrifying because it, it was essentially how they dealt with the Axon problem in that story, that they gave the race or this being, however you want to describe it, the ability to travel through time. And they programmed into the ship or their consciousness to go forward in time through a particular point and then to loop back and go through that point from the opposite direction. So you basically have a, like an infinity mm. symbol. So they kind of paralleled it with space and time being the same thing. 
that you just went on this journey that was going round and round in this cycle through the same point in time going forwards and backwards and that they were forever stuck in this cycle and that there was no way to escape from it so it was an eternal hell that there was just no way of breaking out of this trap that the, the doctor put them in oh so it was a prison effectively yeah 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 hmm but yeah we see all sorts of different kinds of time loops in fiction and i think the version that we see most commonly in in media particularly in television and film is the one that's inspired obviously by groundhog day where you have a protagonist or a group of protagonists who you know as i think you said paul are going back to a set point in time over and over again until they can find some condition to break them out of it that's, I think, a very particular kind of time loop that's come to dominate media. And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm fascinated by how quickly that trope developed its own sort of cinematic grammar. That if you mm. are watching an episode of a science fiction series and you see someone walking down the street, one of the protagonists walking down the street, and there are random events happening around them. You know, a dog runs up and barks, someone rides past on a bicycle and falls off, and so on. You just sort of see these things, these background events that are apparently inconsequential, and the protagonist either half noticing them or ignoring them as soon as that happens you can be absolutely sure that you're watching a time loop episode <laughs> we get it in um supernatural don't we i'm picking a poke is that it yeah it's where they sit down at the rest and the uh oh the diner and he's like oh it must be tuesday picking a poke day you hear that line repeatedly <laughs> throughout the episode <laughs> that's a great episode <laughs> but there are other very different kinds of time loop that we see in media I guess what one of the defining characteristics of the type in Groundhog Day that you were talking about, Paul, is that everything apart from the protagonist's memory resets during each loop. Yeah. But you have ones like you mentioned in Triangle, Matt, where there are physical artifacts. Let's not go into details, but there <laughs> are changes that are wrought by the protagonist or by events that accumulate throughout where maybe other people caught within the the time loop don't realize what's going on but there are still going to be fiscal changes and i think that's that's probably even better suited for horror because you've got mm. this sort of feeling of things with each loop spiraling out of control yeah, and it's when you have those little, you, you can reincorporate motifs or visual elements again, like maybe minor spoiler for Triangle, but there's one particular scene where you see basically like a whole stack of bodies and like one of the characters that's evidently suffered a mortal wound crawling over to that pile to die. Hmm. And then later on, you see a pile of dead birds and you think, hang on a minute, are we out of the loop or are we not out of the loop here? And it's yeah, just that kind of penny drop moment where you, you're almost like the protagonist at that point, suddenly realising, hang on, what's going on here? Yeah. And yeah, it works fantastically for horror if it's employed in the right way. It's certainly the one time loop scenario I've published, and I, I won't give the name away because it's a huge spoiler for it. But yeah, it does very much involve that sort of disintegrating time loop that every time 
the protagonists do something that changes things. It has consequences and ripples through and causes the time loop to decay in horrifying ways. And I had a lot of fun with that. You just like tormenting your characters and your players. (laughs) (laughs) I have been told that that is possibly the most depressing scenario ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a a double-edged sword of that it's the most Lovecraftian and therefore it's the most depressing and most horrific. (laughs) (laughs) But also you have other ones from media which have different rules. A bit like that thing that I was talking about last episode was Travellers, where you had the sort of compressing time where they could only jump back a certain way, and that was getting shorter and shorter. There was a little story arc in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of all things, which was quite nightmarish along those lines, where the protagonists again realised that they were stuck in a time loop because of some malfunctioning alien artefact, I think, and they were trying to break out of it. But the complication that they had was that each iteration of the time loop was shorter and shorter, and they were going back and they were trying different things to see whether they could break out of this. Each time they were doing it, they'd find like this, this one-hour time loop was five minutes shorter and five minutes shorter and five minutes shorter, and they were just trying to find ways of breaking out of this before it got down to nothing, and they were just trapped repeating the same moment over and over again, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool. Yeah, there's uh, another one that's quite nice, which is finding that key to get out, but it also had a, a snapshot of what happened in the wider universe outside of just the locale being affected by the loop. It was an old episode of Stargate SG-1, where there's, insert bad guy for one episode, does something crazy with some kind of ulterior motive to try and, I think it's to try and bring someone back from the dead or something like that. And it results in O'Neill and Teok being stuck in this loop. But from O'Neill's perspective, it's like he's stuck in the middle of a conversation he wasn't listening to the first time round, and he has to keep going through the explanation of, I was not listening to you, I do not know what you're saying, go away. And Teok always snapping back to the moment where someone accidentally opens a door in his face. It's quite a comical overtone for the whole thing. But when they realise they've got eternity on their hands, what do they do? They practice their backswing to put golf balls through the Stargate. But eventually it was trying to think of what what can we do to try and stop this? And everything they attempted just ended up resulting in the same thing. The loop would start over again until they finally they cracked it. But then you see uh, an epilogue just before the credits roll of, oh yeah, one of these alien races that we're allied with has been trying to get in contact with us. It's like, they've been trying to do it for months, but they couldn't get in touch with us because we were stuck in the loop. Why did it take you that long to find the way out? Well, the whole golf thing and <laughs> everything else they did because they thought they weren't getting out of it. But yeah, it's just, it wasn't the whole universe stuck in the loop. It was just their little pocket of time. Hmm. A more nightmarish version as well of a time loop is one in which the people stuck within it don't realise that they are. We've talked about how you get protagonists who retain their memory through each loop. But I guess there could be a different kind of horror where you perhaps realise something changes, there's some outside factor that comes in. Say that you're one of the supporting characters in Groundhog Day, right? And you have Bill Murray's character, whose name I can't remember, so let's just call him Bill Murray, who starts telling you that you are 
just there living the same day over and over with him. It's Phil Connors because my memory suddenly works. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And let's just say that they managed to convince you of this. But you realize that at the end of the day, you're going to lose your memory of that. Then the next day, maybe you'll have this revelation again. I think there's a certain kind of existential terror there, isn't there? That it's sort of, I can only hold on to the reality of this situation for a little while. Maybe I can do something to make a difference. But unless someone tells me about it again, I'm lost within this. Hmm. Yeah, Bill Murray does go through that in Groundhog Day because he tries to convince his producer that this is what's happening and he goes around the diner saying, well, this is what I've learned about everyone here in the like, the years that I've been stuck in this constantly repeating loop. And there is that penny drop realisation where she goes, actually, this could be real. But yeah, that could be quite a horrific thing because it's there is no tomorrow for you, but you don't know that. And you'll never know that potentially. But I guess the difference is the focus on who the protagonist is in that story, because there mm-hmm. you've got Bill Murray's character, who's the protagonist, who's trying to convince the producer. But let's say you were doing this in terms of a scenario. If you were playing characters who were stuck within that loop, and then you had an NPC try to convince you of that, maybe they provided you with some evidence. What would you as player characters do about that with the knowledge that you have maybe 12 hours to do something before you forget all this again and maybe end up trapped in this forever? Mm. It'd be an interesting take on it, and I think it would flip the structure of that kind of thing on its head. I'm not sure which would be more fun to play. Play the one that is doing the loop or the one that is being caught up in the loop. Mm. Has anyone ever asked you, what year is it? Did you just ask me that? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm asking you now. <laughs> <laughs> they always seem to say this in the shows and they go up to some random stranger and are like, what day is it? And they're like, April the 5th. But what year? Actually, this does happen to me a lot of work and it's always in January. <laughs> in our line of work, we're always approving credit lines for a year in advance. And it gets to that point of, hang on a minute, are we putting it for like 2023 or 2024? Ah! There is, every January happens to all of us. We have that sudden moment where we can't think about, hang on, we're, we're now in the future. We're now in that year that we've put everything on our last year's worth of documentation. It does have that kind of jarring moment as soon as we clock over to January 1st. Oh, the closest I can get to that was filling out a mortgage application. And the guy asked me for my date of birth, told him. And then he said, hey, I don't know why he then asked for age as well, because if you've got date of birth. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what it when It was a few years back. So I was like 48. And he's like, no, you're 47. All right. No, I'm 48. Why did you ask? <laughs> yeah, but you just told me your date of birth. So you're 47. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. You're right. I am not 48. I'm 47. Yeah. I, I, but that's not time travel. That's just bad memory. So you got a whole year back there, Paul. <laughs> I think it was the good way. I think I gained a year rather than lost a year. So it's like, a, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one there. I, I have to work it out virtually every time. It's only because I'm not staring down the barrel of a big number this year that I know what it currently is. Yeah, 40, Matt. Uh, yeah. yeah. That would be a great way of breaking the ice, wouldn't it, if you wanted to introduce yourself to someone. Instead of just going up and asking them their name or something like that, just run up to them, shake them by the shoulders and say, what year is it? <laughs> great way to break the ice at parties. Yes. Another 
possible form of time travel, or at least tangentially related to time travel, that we might see in games of Call of Cthulhu is communication through time. So I was thinking very much of Prince of Darkness, for example. Oh, yeah. So you have this broadcast that is being sent back through, I think they use tachyon particles, don't they? Beamed into people's brains to create dreams, to give them premonitions of the future that is awaiting for them unless they, they take certain actions. And you just get a little bit more every time it loops round in the film again. I love Prince of Darkness. That is a great film. I mean, that's definitely something I think you could do. So you could have a game set in two time periods with some ability to communicate between the two of them is kind of what you're describing, right? So mm. that would be interesting. So you could have maybe in some way that the earlier game can affect, you know, the actions they take in some way can affect the reality in the other world. So obviously the ones in the past can leave the ones in the future messages because they just, mm. I don't know, bury it in an envelope in the wall or something like that. The logistics are already making my brain start to leak out through my ears. <laughs> the way of the modern contemporary one communicating with the one 100 years ago, that's, that's the problem, isn't it? But if they find a way to do that, but maybe it's not full-fledged time travel, but it's a time travel. Maybe there's a book I can write in and the words appear in this book 100 years ago. There was a film that used exactly that premise, wasn't there? Was there? Like 10 or 15 years ago. I'm going to sue them. Yeah. stealing my idea <laughs> they came and listened to this show and they went back in time and made that film <laughs> that's my contention i forgot what it's called but i think it was actually a romance story oh the notebook was that the one i don't know there was no way i was going to ever watch that film i saw the trailers in the, uh, yeah. in the movie theater i was like no it's not for me that's one we haven't looked at uh -huh. time travel stories that don't kind of fit within uh, a normal model somewhere in time Oh, yeah. Based on the Richard Matheson story, because I remember that's very much about the coin is the item, like the tether that brings him forward to the future. Mm. But yeah, that doesn't really fit in any of the normal models. How does that not fit, Matt? Well, it's not like a projection. It's not a time loop. It's not quite physical travel in a way. It's, it's just weird. It's kind of one of those outliers that doesn't quite neatly fit into any of the pigeonholes. So just communicating through time or? It does kind of go back, but he's not quite in the past at the same time because he has this connection to the present that if he realises it, like in the film or in the book, he finds this penny which he has in his pocket, which is what then snaps him back to the present, so it brings him forward. It's almost like a dream state that he's kind of going back and then he'll wake up if he realises. Yeah, ex exactly that, yeah. Hmm, yeah. But I've not seen The Notebook either. I've heard of it and I just heard that it's a terrible romance film. I didn't realise it had time travel. Yeah, I don't know if it's that one or... I. What I will do is, using the magic of editing, I will find out what <laughs> film exactly we're talking about, and I will edit it into the podcast afterwards and make us sound much more intelligent than we really are. Well, this is Scott from the future. When I say from the future, I mean from the past, because obviously anything you listen to that's recorded is in the past. But I'm in the future as far as the Scott you were just listening to is concerned, so it, it all kind of works out, right? Anyway, the film I was trying to think of is apparently The Lake House, a 2006 film starring Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves. 
I have not seen this film. I saw a trailer a while back, which is clearly what put this idea in my head. I have no idea if it resembles what I just said, but, well, there you have it. Again, more uh, recent films. I don't think you can confuse the fact that that classic masterpiece hot tub time machine definitely is about <laughs> time travel. Is it? I've not actually seen that. I'd like to, I'd like to give that a watch. It's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've heard good things about it. I've not seen it myself. There's a sequel too, which pretty much just treads over the same ground as the first one. But yeah, the mm. first one is is quite funny, where you've got uh, kind of like predestination in a way. They meet a character that they know at some point is going to lose his arm in an accident. And there's various points where you think, oh, this is going to be it. This is going to be it. And no, it's not. He doesn't lose his arm yet. And then it's, <laughs> oh, it's going to happen again. And no, no, it's not. No, it's not. And eventually he does lose it. And it's just, oh, I'd never see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there's also a subgenre of time travel, which could be quite cool in Call of Cthulhu, which is objects or items or, or maybe even creatures that somehow just end up in the wrong time, maybe through magic, maybe through mad science, whatever. What was that fantastic science fiction short story, The Black Bag? Was that the one where there's a doctor's bag from the far future that somehow ends up in the present and has all sorts of weird technology in it that that is incredibly powerful for healing i'm sure it's called the black bag hmm. seeing as i'm sending these transmissions from the future i might as well correct myself here as well the story i was thinking of was the little black bag by cm combleth there is a call of cthulhu scenario which does something similar to that though it's in fear sharp little needles i think I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. I know I think it's one word and then a number after it. But uh, Holly on um, Into the Darkness ran it for us as a converted it into a Delta Green scenario where you had this trunk appear at a railway station and that each time it appeared, there was something odd inside. Mm. That was quite a fun one. Because you could certainly have a, a restraint that, yes, you can put things through this time gate but they don't survive. So you can only send inanimate objects or you can send a living one, but it'll be an inanimate when it comes out the other side if you want. Mm. That would be a very workable constraint, wouldn't it? So you can only send, you could send messages, you could send items. Could a reverse Terminator, only dead things will go. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh God, imagine, yeah, if you were doing that as a scenario, let's say that you'd found some way of making a time gate or something like that and you mm. were randomly plucking say specimens from the distant past to populate your museum and you were plucking dinosaurs or mm. giant arthropods and things like that through and then you're used to them arriving in the present day dead so you preserve them put them on display and you're the talk of the town and then one day you latch on to some mythos entity i mean let's say for argument's sake a shoggoth but something that existed in the distant past and it survives the journey and it's mm. like, oh hang on what the fuck do we do with this yes yes Probably scream before getting eaten. Yeah, that'd be about <laughs> it, really. Yeah, I mean that'd be like almost like a fishing trip that you you open your gate, yeah, and you can see through to the other side, and you you know you cast your bait through and like draw little animals or like you say dinosaurs through, 
but yeah, one day you accidentally attract something. I mean, yes, I feel like we're getting into Hounds of Tinderloss territory there, but but you draw something <laughs> through the gate, or maybe yeah, I don't know. Obviously, the gate comes on at midnight when you're not there, and something comes through. I did actually write something a bit like that for the Cthulhu Britannica box set where there was all oh, that secret society that I created there, the Society of London for the Exploration and Development of the Hysteric Sciences. The London box set? Yes, yes, for the bo London mm -hmm. box set. Mm. The idea was that they were these scientific rationalists who'd got hold of a copy of the book Vibon and were looking at it purely from a rationalist perspective, and as a result, discounting anything in it that seemed like superstition. And this led them to do some really interesting things, but it also meant they made catastrophic mistakes because they were deliberately limiting their interpretation of what it was that they were reading. And one of the things that I put in there was that they'd accidentally created a time gate in the basement of their, their headquarters, which they ended up having to brick up because giant centipedes kept coming through and trying to eat them. <laughs> and we'll be back with more about time travel after this short break. Hello, this is Dave from the Frankenstein's Role-Playing Game podcast. We'd like you to listen to us. Oh, because you hear things like this. Once for yes, twice for oh, no. How about that? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, yes. we can. Very faintly, but you're... You are quite quiet, though. Well, well that's yeah, because you, I was over you, here because I keep forgetting that if you've got a microphone, you have to be somewhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> it's... It's almost like sound is a is a physical thing. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to intimidate you guys and make you feel that you're dealing with a professional. So if this is the level of professionalism you're looking for in podcasts, then please do come and join us. The Frankenstein's RPG podcast, where we try the truly Herculean task of stitching together the ultimate role-playing game. And by ultimate, we're using it in its very broadest sense. Frankenstein's RPG podcast available on all good podcast networks. Come and find us. Have you visited our Redbubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, and today we're talking about time travel. Again. Didn't I say that last time? Who knows, but maybe you will again. So time travel in Call of Cthulhu. We have various artifacts and spells for time travel, notably gates. So they are used for traveling through space and time. Possibly one, possibly the other, possibly both. Boy, do they cost a lot of magic points if it's both. <laughs> yes. I mean, there is that fantastic table in the book for like the amount of time you're traveling or the amount of miles you're traveling. And it goes up to like really big numbers, which always, always cool when you first open the book. I think it can be years instead of miles. Or maybe days instead of miles. You change miles for years and that's the, the scale. Yeah. I think that comes out of some Volker Stirlis stuff, doesn't it, the gates? And it occurs to me that that 
may be the only example in mythos fiction or classic mythos fiction I can think of with physical time travel. Certainly in Call of Cthulhu, the stuff that's been drawn out of the the classic weird tales, almost all the forms of time travel that we see there are the psychic variety, aren't they? Uh, no, there is one instance I can think of where it is physical time travel, and mm. that's through the gates of the Silver Key. Oh, yeah. Because you have, what's his name, Carter, who jumps in one of their light beam envelopes and then calculates his trajectory back to Earth from Yadith. And again, he gets his sums wrong. Like, he gets a lot of stuff wrong in that story. <laughs> and he ends up back in Earth, but in his own past. So, no, there, there is physical time travel even Lovecraft stories. Oh, right. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten that. I always forget about that story because I I read it oh, 40 years ago and I, I really didn't like it. And, yeah, my, my mind just closes over it every time. <laughs> Is that the Silver Key or Through the Gates of the Silver Key? There's two, aren't there? The latter, yeah, it's Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Yeah. It's where you have the revelation of Yogg-Sothoth and that the shards of consciousness spread out across the universe and time and that's how he ends up in the body of a, another of his own self on Yadith. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. a collaboration with E. Hoffman Price, wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. But as I was saying, we have a lot of forms of time travel in the mythos that have found their way into Call of Cthulhu, which are far more of the psychic variety. Now, the one that is probably best known is one that we're going to come to next episode which is the psychic projection of the mind back in time that we see in the hands of Tindalos through a drug called Liao. But we won't go into that here because we've got a, a whole episode to talk about it next time. How to gain skills in dog training. We've got the uh, the plutonium drug, though. Mm. Is that the? Yeah. Have I got that. Have I said that correctly? It's plutonium, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I'd forgotten until I went back and and skimmed the story just before the recording this that the drug is actually called plutonium in in uh, Clark Ashton Smith's original story. Is it? Oh. Yeah. But yeah, that is from his story, The Plutonian Drug. The Plutonian Drug is a bit different from the drug we see in The Hands of Tindalos because Liao in The Hands of Tindalos allows you to send your mind way, way, way back in time. With The Plutonian Drug, is a bit more of a, a physical thing and a bit more of a limited thing. That it seems to be tethered very much to your physical self. So you have to walk around if you want to experience it in different places. And it only allows you to see forward and backward several hours, if I remember correctly. Hmm. What it does, much like the drug in the hands of Tindalos, is it allows one to perceive time as a physical fourth dimension. Now, I remember encountering this in, I think it was a Robert Heinlein story, I can't remember which one, where, again, someone sees time as a physical dimension and just, for example, sees people as these huge worm-like constructs because you're seeing them in every point of space that they've passed through simultaneously. Everything then becomes like extruded through this fourth dimension. And, yeah, I think there's an element of that in the plutonium drug in the story. How does it work in the game? Uh, the drug can send the user's mind back in time, sometimes so far back that the user 
may even encounter hounds of Tindalos. Entities are capable of traveling up and down through the corners. We'll talk about that next time. So basically, it is a, a drug that allows you to um, cast your mind through time. So I guess what's happened in Call of Cthulhu is they've collapsed the plutonium drug and, and Liao into a single drug. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They had two that did something relatively similar, so I thought, ah, just give it the same name and it's different names for the same thing. Yeah. Though in the, the fiction, they're really quite different. I mean, I think when you use them in a scenario, I mean, you could easily draw on that difference, couldn't you? Or alternatively, you could have someone tragically mistake one for the other. Mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it occurs to me when you said about traveling back a few hours, it's like that could be used by if you were playing an investigative game. I mean, what better way to investigate something than to go back to the scene of the crime? Who killed this person? Yeah. Yeah, to jump back a few hours. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's a TV show or something like that that, that takes that premise, isn't there? Somebody who can travel back short times to witness things. I'm sure that's been done. There was a BBC series. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, yeah. Yes. Fronted by the lady who played Kachansky in one of the later Red Dwarf series. But yeah, she basically goes into yeah. a room, it rewinds time, then she goes to solve a crime that she's read about in the newspaper. Right. Yeah, yeah. Another quick transmission from the future. The name that was eluding us there was Crime Traveller from 1997. There was also an Isaac Asimov story, the name of which escapes me, which had a similar premise that someone had created a mechanism whereby you could look back through time. And there were great hopes that it would provide answers to all the mysteries of the distant past. And then they discovered that it would only allow you to look back a few hours. And so what it actually ended up becoming was the most invasive surveillance tool ever. Future Scott here again, telling you that the story that I was trying to think of was The Dead Past from 1956. Well, thinking of the past, only going back so far, we've got another one we haven't touched upon, although we've mentioned the author. Stephen King's The Langoliers, where the past is gone, it's devoured, that you have mm. these creatures that are mopping up behind humanity as humanity moves through time. They eat everything that preceded it. Mm. So what effect does that have on us then? Oh, we're fine. We keep moving forward through time, but space exists in the past. So it's, I think, Dean Stockwell's character in the adaptation says, Dear time travellers, you realise we can't go back to the days of ancient Rome. We can't go back to see the founding of the pyramids oh. because it's just an emptiness, this place that is devoid of all life and essence, but also is just waiting to be devoured by the Langoliers that are slowly, always just that few steps behind us in the time stream. Oh, yeah, because if I remember correctly in the story, it's a group of people... They go to sleep on an airplane, they pass through a rift, they wake up and they find that everyone else in the world has disappeared, in inverted commas. Mm. False logic. Mm. But also in the mythos as well, we talked a little while back about uh, Clark Ashton Smith's story, Ubo Sathler. And mm -hmm. that again has this idea of projecting one's consciousness back in time, though this is in a much less controlled manner. So you've got this magical crystal, the crystal of Zon Mesomalach, which will allow you to go back and experience previous lives. It's almost like inhabiting previous bodies and possessing them, but 
if I remember correctly from the story, it's a much more passive process that you're basically just living them with the person. And then the protagonist just ends up going further and further back and inhabiting pre-human bodies all the way back to becoming the source or part of the source himself. It seems like there is a common theme amongst the mythos stories that generally going back in time is a bad thing. It's like, hey, see Uber Sattler, go mad. Go look farther back, see a hound of Tindalos, get yourself killed. Go far enough back to the uh, track to Yithian, body swap with them, have your mind wiped and have your body played with in, in the present. Nothing good comes out of the past. <laughs> it's almost like they're horror stories, Matt. Ah. But of course, you touched upon probably the biggest example of the mythos there, which is the Yithians. Mm hmm. And that's their innate ability is to be able to travel, well, to be able to possess the minds of other species and basically, well, we're doomed, our race on this planet is doomed, so we're just <laughs> going to mind swap with another race of beings on a distant planet and they're all screwed because they're inhabiting our bodies, but we don't care about them. We're in some good bodies on another planet now. And not only that, but we can travel through time. We can project our consciousness not just across space, but also across time. But is that an innate ability? What? Their ability to transfer their minds through time. Is that an innate ability? Because in the story, we've got that bit where Peasley is doing some research into what his body got up to when he wasn't there. Hmm. And he discovers that he had commissioned the construction of this device, and it's described as a queer mixture of rods, wheels, and mirrors, though only about two feet tall, one foot wide, and one foot thick. The central mirror was circular and convex. All of this was borne out by makers of such parts as can be located. And this was the device that the Yithians seemed to use to reverse the process and go back to its original body. They can project forward, but they need the assistance to go back. That's how I remembered it. I don't think we're ever told for certain that they do it innately from their own time. I interpreted it as that was potentially done by a device as well. I mean, it may be a device they've created that they use, but whether it's a device, yeah, I mean... I think there is definitely, as you say, there's a device in the story of, of some sort of mechanism that time machine is effectively. But they have their race living like what millions of years in our past mm -hmm. in a city under the Australian desert. And there's evidence that they can travel through various periods, you know, to, to our well, to, to Peasley's period in the, the early 1920s, I think it is, all the way to like a race beyond humans that take over the earth and they're aware of all of these things yeah this insectile race yeah so they have a very uh they have a perspective on time that is very hard for us to conceive one thing i like about this device that peasley finds is that it then opens up the possibility that humans could get hold of such a thing and play with it and mm. i think if i were using that in a game i wouldn't have the player characters be able to control it properly but as a device well as a narrative device as well as a, a, a scientific device 
having this uncontrolled way of of projecting your consciousness elsewhere in time, forward or backward, and not fully understanding it is, I think, something that opens up some great possibilities, particularly when the people don't necessarily understand how it works, how to reproduce it, and a similar device is needed to get back again, so it Mm -hmm. automatically becomes like a one-way journey. Just hope you land in an era where they can manufacture the parts to be able to get this thing together. And also hope that you didn't land in the body of, say, someone who was 98 years old and had a terminal disease. (laughs) Or just jumped off a cliff. Yeah. Or the shortest trip, you land in the head of an Aristo as they're just being lowered into the guillotine. Yes. (laughs) Or worse, Pop Petunia falling through space. (laughs) accompanied by a whale yes oh no not again (laughs) so i've got a question for you to to perhaps wrap up Mm. so if you were given the ability to time travel when would you time travel to matt when would you when would you go to i'll be tempted to go back to myself as a kid and say here's a (laughs) list of winning lottery numbers on these dates and by the way, do <laughs> X, Y, and Z. Don't do this, this, and this. Right. Yeah. Words of wisdom that you'd pass to your younger <laughs> self. Indeed. Do you think he'd listen? Probably not. That's the, that's the <laughs> annoying thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably nobody more annoying than ourselves if we were to meet them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I may be speaking for myself, but it sounds like I'm not. <laughs> What about you, Scott? When would you go to? Is there a a time or a place that you'd travel to? If we're not being too serious about it, what I'd do is go back to maybe 1920 and try to convince Lovecraft to get some more fruit and vegetables in his diet. For a minute there, I thought you were going to go back and kill Hitler. (laughs) But no, you're just going to give Lovecraft nutritional advice. That's more important to you than killing Hitler. Okay. If it was something outside of my own circumstance, then I think I'd probably end up going to um, to Madagascar somewhere before the extinction of the dodo and grab a few of them and bring them home with me. <laughs> oh, nice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Is that where they were, Madagascar? I think they were there. Well, they, they, was, they were on some island off the mm. east coast of Africa, I think. I thought it was Madagascar, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. One last correction from the future. We were trying to think of Mauritius. But just to put that in context with Lovecraft, for any listeners who don't know, Lovecraft died of stomach cancer that was very likely related to his poor diet and nutrition. One of the reasons I, I'd really like to have seen him live longer is the fact that, I mean, we all accept the fact that Lovecraft was an absolutely horrible racist. But... What perhaps is less well known is the fact that his views were changing and evolving as time went on. He was rejecting a lot of the racist beliefs that had informed his earlier life. And I'd really like to see what Lovecraft could have turned into, what his work could have turned into, if he'd had 30 years more of life. Perhaps we might remember him a lot more fondly as a human being if he hadn't died when he had. Who knows? I think for myself, I, I was thinking about this question and uh, I was looking out the window. I think it'd be fascinating to, I'm, I'm often taken with the idea of going back to when my house was 
built or sort of early on in the early years of when it existed. So, I mean, two houses I've lived in, I used to think about this at the farm cottage as well. For context, the farm cottage I lived in was built around 1880, I think. And this house I'm in now is kind of 1850 or so. And got electric lights and it's got Mm -hmm. electric sockets. It wouldn't have had any of that. It would, I think my house that I'm in now, I looked it up and around the corner there was a gas works. So I think it would have had a gas light. It would have probably been fitted when it was built. It probably had gas lighting. Would it have had an indoor toilet? I don't know. That's something I don't really know too much about. I'm, I'm, a lot of places didn't. I mean, a lot of places didn't have indoor toilets into the, well into the 1900s. So Certainly my house is, I think, around the same age. Maybe I think it's 1860-something. And the bathroom was, I think, only added in the, the, the 20th century. Mm. That it had an outside toilet before, and it's a bedroom that was converted into a bathroom. But just the experience of being able to be in this house and look out the window and there's no road. There's Well, there's a road, but there's there wouldn't be tarmac. There Obviously, there wouldn't be cars. Mm. What would there be? There'd be people walking by. I guess, would there be pavement as such? I'm guessing it's just a, would it just be dirt or would it be, I don't know what, what construction the road would be, but there'd be horses and carts and carriages and so on. And there'd be people walking up and down. There, a lot of it would just be fields, what I'm looking at now. And just been able to go out of my house and walk into town from the street from where I live. A lot of that was, uh, it would have been existing at that time. A lot of the same buildings, exactly the same buildings would be there. But, you know, all these different businesses and just to see that, just to see how people lived then on a, on a day-to-day basis. And it would be, their language would be slightly archaic, but I think I'd get by just fine. It'd just be fascinating to see, I think, to consider how life would have been then. Are there photographic records of your area around that time? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are lots of photographs that get shared of Buckingham from, you know, previous times. Um, and in fact, there's a, between me and the town centre, there's it only shut like a year or two back but there was some um, Chapman's photography shop, which opened in the 1800s. There's also Ganderton's Garage, which also opened in the 1800s. Like, mm. So both of these places were there before cars and before like the modern camera. I don't know. Yeah, It's just uh, mind-boggling to think you could walk up there and those two companies would be there doing the same thing. You're only a couple of years younger than me, and I was born what, 20 years after the end of the Second World War. So the age in which we grew up was a very different age than we see now. Mm, for sure. I very often do feel like a time traveller. I feel like someone who has travelled to this strange new world from the 20th century and quite often do feel a bit lost. And I think this is just an inevitable part of getting older, that the world does gradually turn into a place you don't recognise, for better and worse. I mean, there are a lot of things about the present day that I definitely wouldn't change. There are a lot of things I absolutely would. But change over time is inevitable. But from a personal perspective, is deeply unsettling. And just seeing that from the natural flow of time, from just, from just aging, makes me appreciate 
how shocking it would be to travel into the future. And just perhaps on a last point to, to mention there, there's a comic called Transmetropolitan, which is set in a, a city in the far future, a science fiction comic. And there's a recurring thing in there about people who were in our age put into cryogenic suspension and then are awakened into this, this future city. And they're given medical help in order to rebuild their bodies and become healthy again. And then they go out into this future world and almost inevitably go insane because the world is just so completely different that it just becomes a recognized syndrome that they cannot adapt to how different everything is from their own time. And I think in a, a horrible way, that's probably one of the most realistic descriptions of time travel I've seen in fiction. Mm. I think it would drive you mad. And you say I'm the ray of sunshine in this grey, grey world. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, like you said, one of the products of ageing is is being aware of that passing of time. Mm. And also, you know, something I've, uh, I'm aware of is we're here for quite a short space of time, really. And you, you get more of a perspective, I think. And we're here for quite a, a small window in history. And people's perspective is really down to what their lifetime is, I think. Mm. And that perspective, you know, we, we don't have the, the 19th century perspective anymore. We have it recorded in writing and, and so on. I mean, not film, right? I mean, a little bit of film maybe, but very early film. But even, you know, next, well, sorry, we're living in the 21st century now. We, we have a, a recording of the, the 20th century and we remember that. But, you know, in a few decades, well, quite a few decades, People aren't going to remember the 20th century and they're just going to have that, that footage. What does it give them of it? It doesn't really give them the true memory of it. It gives them a, a recording of it. So I think more than anything, I'm aware that we just see a little mm. window of time. So not wishing to sound like Jerry Springer, but, you know, let's all just try and make it a good one. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again. Uh, there, there's that word again, time when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode, however many times you've done it without realising. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage, and we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Mark Miller. And also thank you very much to Chris Webb. Aha, uh -huh, familiar name here. Thank you very much to Hilmar Emstrand. And thanks to Abe Hughes. And thank you much to Brandon Osterman. And thank you to Anders Bjornberg. And thank you to May Tompkinson. And thank you very much to Alan Graham. And finally, thank you to David Lepink. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews for podcasts can be found, or just letting like-minded people know on social media if the topic comes up. I'd recommend taking a leaf out of the Prince of Darkness playbook and send it back in time so that people can get it through their dreams. 
Well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.